Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Sermapod. This is the podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I am the founder and CEO of Serma, Rich Lankov. I'm also the host of the Sermapod. We're very privileged to, uh, today to have Paul Fackler from Mayor Brown out of New York. Of course, Mayor Brown is an uh, international law firm, but uh, Paul is with the New York office, and he uh, focuses in on intellectual property. Paul, welcome to the Sermapod. Well, thank you very much for having me, Rich. I- I appreciate the opportunity. So we're discussing today uh, the question that's relatively uh, new, and uh, the question is, can you copyright a rhythm, right? And this involves a lawsuit involving uh, some music that really goes back 30, 30 years ago. Uh, there was a, a song called Fish Market that was released um, by a Jamaican duo, that Jamaican duo is called Cleveland Cleavy Brown and Wycliffe Steely Johnson, better known as Cleavy and Steely. And in many ways, this is a groundbreaking lawsuit, even though this particular genre of music called uh, reggaeton is not maybe widely known. I certainly didn't know much about it before we started. But why don't you explain to our listeners and viewers a little bit more about um, what's the genesis of this lawsuit, if you can? Sure. So uh, Steely and Cleavy were... Uh a production duo, uh, songwriters and song producers in Jamaica. Uh, and in 89 or 1990, around, the, around that time, uh, they released some recordings um, that included an instrumental called Fish Market that was really just a very basic instrumental and consisted of a, a fairly rudimentary beat being repeated um, with some flourishes on the symbols and, you know, no, no lyrics or anything like that. Uh, and this, they, there was another song on the same album, I believe, that used the same music bed, but actually had lyrics on it. Um, a couple of, uh, within a year or two after that, um, Steely and Cleavy produced another recording uh, by uh, Shaba Ranks uh, called Dembo that incorporated this same music into a whole new song, this whole music bed, the rhythm bed, into an entirely new song. That song really blew up. It was extremely popular. And uh, it's re- widely reported to be the beginning of this genre called now called reggaeton music. And apparently, uh, over the last 30 years or so, uh, you know, hundreds of recordings in this genre have been released that use a very similar sort of beat as the foundation for that type of music. And it's unusual because in, in there are a lot of other areas of music that start with a, a uh, you know, uh, a very important seminal song uh, or groove or beat. And as that genre develops, it gets modified a lot. And then there are, there are still going to be some common grooves and beats to that genre. It's what makes it a genre. Um, but usually the, it, branches out a bit more. And apparently in reggaeton, they've really stuck to beats and, and grooves that are very similar in a lot of ways to this early groove. So now 30 years later, um, the estate of one of the producers and the other second producer himself are now suing essentially every artist and record company and music publisher that ever released a, a reggaeton track that sold anything. 
Um, so there's this massive lawsuit that's basically um, Steely and Cleavy versus the entire reggaeton <laughs> industry, so to speak. And and the allegation is that by copying um, the same or a similar beat to this original track, that constitutes copyright infringement. Um, they, their licenses weren't sought for that underlying beat. So the whole question, as you put it really, you know, it was a very long-winded explanation of what you summed up quite nicely at the beginning. It really presents uh, pretty neatly, you know, the extent to which you can copyright a beat, a rhythm. So this issue was partially also the subject of the blurred line lawsuits, right? That was groundbreaking in many ways because it's different. That alleg the allegation in that case wasn't that an actual lyric or you know parts of the song were copied. It was more of a like this, a rhythm or a sound. Why, Paul, is this new emerging area of alleged copyright infringement different from the traditional allegations that we see? We've seen almost since the beginning of popular music. We continue to see, you know, almost every day with artists like Taylor Swift and other popular artists who are accused of ripping off others. Why is this particular uh, um, allegation a little different? Yeah, so good question, because in some ways it's not, right? And in other ways, maybe it is. So it fits within... Uh, this history that you're just discussing of what I would call music plagiarism copyright lawsuits, right? There's a, there's a lot of flavors of copyright litigation in the music industry that I'm involved with all sorts. Um, but one particular flavor is this plagiarism type claim where, um, and somebody who wrote or recorded an earlier song claims that a newer song has essentially ripped them off or copied from their song, um, without getting any sort of a license. And as you said, you know, these sorts of disputes have been around really since the beginning of the music industry. Why? Because music, the, the, the act of creating new music always builds upon prior songs and the history of music and the way that genres and subgenres develop. Uh, it's, it's always based on that. And, and also combined with the fact that particularly with respect to popular music, um, which tends to be based in the histories of blues, R&B, rock, you know, is, is relatively uncomplicated, shall we say, like musically compared to maybe some other genres like jazz or, or classical. Um, with the palette that a songwriter or an artist has to work to build from is a little bit more limited, even, even you know, so. So it lends itself to disputes where, an earlier songwriter or artist feels like they hear a new song and they're like, man, that sounds a lot like something I already did. And when you're the person hearing the song, it's probably a little easier to hear, to feel like you've been ripped off than maybe the general public is when they hear multiple songs. Now, typically, those sorts of disputes historically have gotten worked out. They, they never turn into litigation one way or the other. You know, a lot of times licenses or songwriting credits get given or even payoffs without those. And that resolves the thing. And under the theory, it's easier to just deal with that than to get into one of these big litigations, which are very expensive. And as we're about to talk about, can be very hard to predict. Uh, you know, for example, if you go back, I mean, Led Zeppelin, for example, right, is infamous for having, especially in the first couple of albums, just completely lifted songs by, you know, black American blues artists who probably weren't very well known to, you know, a British, you know, rock audience. Um, 
And over time, the credits for all of those original tracks have changed, you know, pursuant to little off the books discussions and settlements where they, in, when the albums were first released, they tried to claim total credit for writing those songs. Over time, they sort of get uh, fixed up. But every once in a while, you will see um, a case goes forward. And then if it's successful, it leads to a, a sort of what I'll call a feeding frenzy of the plaintiff's bar, right? Um, where, ah, there's some money in these disputes. And so then you tend to see more of them. And if you live long enough, you see the pendulum swing forward and then swing back. So in recent times, the Blurred Lines case that you just discussed is a great example of a case that seemed to come out of nowhere, seemed to have, uh, to, to most in the, in the music copyright space, uh, you know, kind of a crazy outcome with a jury. Um, that led to a lot of uptick in litigation in these cases, right? And when we talk about what happened in the Blurred Lines cases, you can't really divorce the outcome from what happened in the case and particularly at the trial, because that's one that, you know, went to a jury and you just happen to have very sort of salacious, unsavory facts and witness testimony. There were things that came out in the Deposition that related to drug use, like all sorts of things that didn't really, shouldn't necessarily have really impacted and whether there was copyright infringement, but in the real world, when you're in court and especially when you're in front of a jury, you know, odd things can happen based on those kind of unsavory. They were very unsympathetic defendants. By the time that they took the stand and gave their testimony, it was just very unsympathetic. So you wound up having this really, you know, big verdict for a plaintiff in this space over, as you said, really, the um, the chords were not the same, the lyrics were totally different, the melody was completely different. And in that case, it wasn't even a rhythm per se, it was the vibe of the song, this sort of je ne sais quoi, right? That when you combine all of these elements into a recording, um, that, you know, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I hear it kind of infringement, okay? And that was like, being uh, being generous to the plaintiff's claims in that case. That was the sum and substance of those claims, but they were successful. So then you had a spate of other litigations. Um, but then, you know, leading into the Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven case um, and uh, then the Katy Perry case and things like that. But what you saw was in these other cases, they came out, you know, in my view, the correct way, where the, the plaintiffs were not successful in those cases. So things started, start, seemed like they were swinging back the pendulum as far as how often these things would actually get litigated. Um, so, But this case seems to be looking to push the pendulum back in the other direction suddenly, uh, because it really is uh, based just on a beat, and on a beat that is a very simple beat, frankly. Um, you know, so so we can get into some of that uh, a little bit later. But, yeah. Well, it's simple. And it's also, you know, to your earlier excellent point, it's new, right? How relevant do you is it the fact that this music, this subset of music is new? And inherently, as you referenced earlier, almost anything that comes after it is going to be at least, let's, let's say, um, attributing, you know, that, that genre, if not full of copying. So it's difficult, I think, on the one hand, to prove that you're copying when the entire genre is inherently based on this very limited sort of 
area of, of music, it seems to me. For sure. I mean, look, it, it all flows from this sort of delicious irony of copyright law, which is that on the one hand, the, the very purpose of copyright law, it's written into the Constitution, right, with Article 1, Clause 8, the Copyright and Patent Clause. The purpose of copyright is supposed to be to encourage the creation of new works. And it's only to achieve that purpose that we give authors these exclusive rights to their creations, right? And that inherently creates tension because all authors build on authorship that comes before them to a certain degree. So it all comes down to drawing this line between inspiration and theft, which is a very mushy line, <laughs> okay? Um, so, so that's the sort of delicious irony of copyright law that you come up with and that it gets written large in, in these sorts of cases. And when you have, look, the, the, the drumbeat that's at issue in this lawsuit is described as a one measure beat that is just repeated. And the, um, the elements of that beat that they call out as distinctive and new are things like the kick drum being on the one and the three and a, 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 a tuned tom also on the one and the three. And then there's some cymbal work that goes over it that varies a little bit, but it's essentially that beat over one of one bar beat over and over and over again. It's extremely repetitive. So, um, you know, the question is, even though uh, no question, the overall effect of that beat was new and it spawned an entire new genre. So it's not to like to take away from that. But the question is, legally, where does copyright law set the, you know, the bar to encourage people to create beats like that, but not prevent, not to kill in the crib, the development of a whole new genre. So that's what's so exciting about this case, because it really draws attention. I, I don't, I can't recall another case where, you know, as I mentioned before, an entire subgenre or genre is susceptible to a claim that they copied the entire thing. Usually there's a little more variety in the way that it evolves as the new genre uh, develops. But in this one, you know, it really hewed pretty closely to that key element of a beat. Now, if you look back again at, you know, the history of, of rock and roll, for example, there, there's Bo Diddley was an artist, right, uh, in the 50s, and he came up with a beat that they call nowadays in rock and blues. They call it the Bo Diddley beat. And that's like a beat that goes dun, 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 right? Thousands and thousands of potential uh, right? defendants, I mean, right? So many, it was so influential. And of course, they call it the Bo Diddley beat, but nobody paid him a license. Right. And George Thorogood made a whole career off of the Bo Diddley beat. All right. And and that's great. Right. You know, like uh, it, it's fine. But even Bo Diddley didn't invent the Bo Diddley beat because that beat is basically based on the clave, which in, you know, uh, Afro-Cuban music um, was, was a very popular beat that goes back to and even even Afro-Cuban music didn't invent the clave. It was based on Western African beats and Caribbean beats, right? Like, so you never, ever get to, there's no prime mover in music, right? Because at the end of the day, Western music is based on a 12-tone system. There's a very limited uh, number of time signatures. And in popular music, you're almost always stuck with 4-4. So there are all of these things that conspire to limit the degree of your choices. So it's not surprising 
that we see similar sounding elements of a song get reused and become very popular. The problem is when somebody tries to sue on just one element of a song, like the beat or the vibe, even worse, right? Um, as opposed to the entirety of the song. So, Paul, you talked about, you know, affording the protection of a creative license over this kind of music. And that's easy to understand and easy to do, perhaps, when reggaeton was in its infancy. It wasn't very lucrative, yep. frankly. Uh, fast forward to, you know, now when the most streamed artists on Spotify the last three years, the biggest tour in 2022, you know, not not Taylor Swift, not Harry Styles, not Adele. It was Bad Bunny and Bad Bunny is in many ways a reggaeton artist. So how does the fact that reggaeton is now in the mainstream and making a lot of money for a lot of people affect the future of this lawsuit and other similar litigation? Well, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how much that development affects the outcome of the lawsuit, you know, from who should win or who should lose, but it certainly tells you why there is a lawsuit, right? Because the, you don't find the plaintiff's bar circling unless there's real money potentially at stake. Um, so, so, you know, I think pretty clearly that's what's going on there, but the history of music is filled with pioneers who were left out in the cold while the generation that came after them and went to their concerts and copied them and then took it and some other added something else to it became wildly popular. I mean, you only have to look back to, you know, as an aging, aging punk rocker myself, like the New York Dolls, okay, are a great example uh, of a band that created something very new, put essentially one album out, to, did a tour to England where everybody in London went to the same concert, got inspired to start a band, and they became The Clash, you know, mo, you know the, the Smiths, all of these other bands that went on to be wildly successful. The Dolls flamed out. Uh, Sylvain Sylvain within, you know, a couple of uh, decades was driving a cab. You know, you, you have all of this other stuff. You know, J David Johansson's off doing Buster Poindexter and all that. So now that doesn't take anything away. I mean, they're still, it takes away from their, their ability to make a living, which is unfortunate. Um, but they do have this influence and they are recognized as progenitors. And and it's true. I mean, you know, Steely and Clevier are were are have been successful producers. They went on to produce a number of big artists in Jamaica. Uh, everybody recognizes their contribution to reggaeton. But the fact is, in life and especially in music, um, you're not always financially rewarded <laughs> for accomplishing something great. The record companies usually are, but the artists are usually not. Last question, Paul, here on the sermon pod, just to follow up on a, a point, a really excellent point you raised earlier in the Blurred Lines case, you know, in many ways, that verdict uh, wasn't a reflection of new case law. It was a reflection, as you mentioned, of maybe jurors tying on to, you know, any juror, any jury in the world, you think they're going to tie into one thing or, you know, they don't. You talk to, talk to them after and they're, you know, focused on the smallest detail. As you mentioned, perhaps in that case, they were focused on you know, anything but the law. They were focused on the celebrity aspects or the alleged drug use or the alleged sexual harassment, right? Um, we just saw the Gwyneth trial, uh, you know, uh, verdict come back yesterday. Who knows if that jury was fixated on the celebrity nature? We're going to see President Trump at some point, maybe ex-President Trump on trial. Who knows what the jury is going to do with that celebrity defendant? My point is, 
um, in a lot of these lawsuits, and reggaeton might be one, you know, who knows, given the intricacies of our jury system, what they're going to focus on. And my real question to you is, you know, you see it even in the Supreme Court with the Andy Warhol case, right? You're asking justices, judges, juries to define art, literally the undefinable. And you're asking people, by the way, who are the most creative people in the world by nature. Um, that seems to be an interesting quandary of our litigation system that you're asking people to, to rule and litigate and decide on very, you know, fine, a very intricate pieces of art who really don't have any experience. But I guess that's the jury system. Right? Yeah, love it or, or hate it. That's the system that we got. And it's the worst system in the universe, except for every other system. So, so here we are, right? <laughs> but because ex exactly because of that dynamic, what always winds up being the case here, because when you're doing this substantial similarity analysis, because at the end of the day, after all of this is, is done, it's really, it's about two things, access and substantial similarity. So the access issue, in some cases, that's a tough issue. If it's some nobody who, you know, had maybe, you know, a thousand streams on Spotify. Um, but a lot of these cases are based on big songs, like the reggaeton case. Nobody, nobody's going to claim that the defendants never heard the fish market recording or a Dembo, you know, right. So that's easy. It's all about substantial similarity. And the problem with music is that you're supposed to be, and again, I tie it back to when you find these cases that base substantial similarity just on one small component of the plaintiff's song, that's where you just have all these opportunities for mischief. Because number one, you're supposed to be, when you, when you do that comparison, when the jury does that comparison, there's only supposed to be comparing the original elements of the plaintiff's song to the defendant's song, right? So that inevitably means you're bringing in experts. So you've got musicologists and it becomes the battle of the experts. And you have to, your heart has to go out to the jury because they're, they're shown these two PhDs who both have sterling credentials and they each says exactly the opposite thing from the other. So, at the end of the day, the quality of the lawyering matters more than it should. And frankly, more than it does in a lot of other cases. I hate to say that as a lawyer, but, you know, sometimes you're stuck with the facts of a case and no matter how good you are, right, there's not much you're going to do. These cases are one where the quality of the lawyering really does matter um, and the quality of the experts. Because at the end of the day, so much of this comes down to who the jury likes so they decide who they trust. Paul, you must be a fun yet uh, interesting guy to go to a concert with. You're probably listening to every song and thinking, wait a second, that sounds familiar. I could, I could defend that or I could litigate that. Paul Fackler from Mayor Brown, thanks so much for joining us on My the Sermon Pod. Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.